This is Josh Barrow. Ken, can you intro yourself? Sorry, I... <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is Josh Barrow. And this is Ken White. And welcome to our new podcast, Serious Trouble. This is the second week of Serious Trouble. Uh, and first of all, I want to thank all of you who've subscribed to the podcast. Uh, we're getting close to a thousand of you who have signed up as paying subscribers, and we really appreciate that. It's the paying subscriptions that make it possible for us to do this show, and the paying subscribers will be getting every episode. Even if you're a free subscriber, welcome. Uh, and uh, you'll be getting about uh, 20 episodes of the show a year. Uh, that's not trivial. Um, but we're really glad that, that all of you are here and listening. And thanks for checking out our website, SeriousTrouble.show. Uh, I encourage you to go there if you haven't already. You can see discussions about what's going on and participate and, uh, you know, abuse me directly rather than the usual way, which is through <laughs> voicemails and the occasional email. Yeah, or, or on Twitter. Sometimes people do that on Twitter, Ken. I've heard. Yeah. Um, the other reason to go there to SeriousTrouble.show uh, is that's where you can become a paying subscriber to the show. So if you're listening to the show and you just signed up through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or some other player, uh, you'll get all the free episodes of the show. But if, if you're going to become a, a full member uh, and get, you know, our 40 plus episodes of the show a year, you need to go to SeriousTrouble.show and sign up there. And then you'll get some very easy instructions, uh, including a, a link that will allow you then to start getting all of those episodes in your podcast player. Uh, we don't want you to miss those episodes. Uh, and since next week's episode will be uh, for paying subscribers only, you're going to have to go this week, go to SeriousTrouble.show, sign up there, uh, and then you'll be able to get all those episodes right there in your player. I promise you're not going to have to deal with some new clunky interface on an ongoing basis. It's very uh, simple. So, Ken, news this week. It's been about a month since the massacre at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, where a mass shooter killed 19 children and two adults. And the facts about the police response here keep getting more outrageous the more we learn. And there's been some amazing reporting being done on what happened there. The latest piece of news uh, is that those supposedly locked classroom doors that cops spent about an hour standing outside, uh, waiting to decide whether to go in, uh, supposedly trying to figure out the, the best possible way to breach these locked doors. It turns out they weren't locked at all. It wasn't even possible to lock the doors from the inside. Uh, all you had to do was turn the knob to get into that classroom where you had children who were not dead and where you had an active shooter. It's just such a, a completely horrifying thing. And that just follows, uh, Josh, a, a series of situations where the facts that have come out have shown that the initial media reports, the initial police claims about what happened were simply wrong, um, often in ways uh, that showed that excuses for police inaction were not, in fact, true. You know, we saw the period where uh, police were blaming things on a teacher propping a door open. That turned out not to be true. We've seen multiple different versions of events about why uh, the police did not uh, immediately rush the shooter and try to resolve the situation, even as we learn that that is indeed uh, what their training says they should do based on long experience with hostage situations like this. Uh, so it, it's been concerning and uh, it's been a reason uh, to exercise some skepticism when you hear the first reports of what law enforcement says happened in a situation like this. And so for good reason, this has a lot of people talking about accountability. What do we do about this massive failure 
of government agencies and government employees here who very likely could have saved lives that they did not save if they had followed appropriate procedures that they didn't follow, if they had, if these police and their commander had been willing to take the risks that are supposed to be inherent in police work. Yes, you can be put in a dangerous situation if you're a police officer responding to a mass shooting. That is your job. As the Texas Department of Public Safety has now said, uh, you had a commander on the scene who prioritized police safety over the lives of these children. So who can be held accountable for that? One thing people have been, for good reason, looking at is, you know, who, who could you sue over this? Is there a legal right to have the police enter that classroom and try to stop the mass shooter and... Can a lawsuit be brought against the police department, against the school district, against individual officers? Is, the, is there a legal duty there uh, that, that, you know, the, the breach of it could be vindicated in court? Well, Josh, uh, I have an answer, but you're not going to like it. And the answer is that, as is often the case, the system operates to largely protect law enforcement from liability for this type of thing. And there are two big picture areas that I think we should talk about. One is the uh, police lack of uh, enforceable duty to protect us, to protect those children. And the second is the concept of qualified immunity, which is a barrier to recovering uh, when you're suing police that are doing things wrong. So let's talk first about the whole idea of duty that you were raising. Do the cops have a duty? Yeah, because I, I think, you know, of these two issues, am I correct in my sense that the lack of duty one is sort of the more important legal issue here? People find qualified immunity infuriating because it basically creates these situations where police violate the constitutional rights of people, uh, and it has to be so blindingly obvious that they did so for it to even be possible to sue them that basically, in a lot of cases, they can say, oh, you know, I didn't realize that was against a constitutional right. And that prevents them from from being held liable in a lawsuit. But my sense is that the 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 bigger legal issue here is whether there's whether there's even a duty claim that that can be made in the first place against any of these entities. That that's the biggest barrier uh, to relief through civil action here. Well, the the two barriers are kind of intertwined, Josh, and one feeds off the other. But you're right. The 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 first one conceptually is the lack of legal duty uh, to uh, protect the public. So like you said, a lot of the rhetorics surrounding why we should treat law enforcement preferentially in a lot of ways and why they should get deference and respect is the idea that they put their lives on the line. And, and many times it's true. Uh, but what the courts have consistently found is that there is no constitutional duty for them to do so. There may be a, a moral duty, and we may speak of duty as something that law enforcement has, but when you go to court and say, I'm suing them because they failed in their duty, it turns out that's not a thing. Where would that arise from in the Constitution if there were a, because I know the Supreme Court has had cases on this, what is the claim about what in the Constitution would create a legal duty for the police to intervene and try to protect you from crime? The things that have been argued have included uh, due process uh, and equal protection clauses. So uh, people have asserted there's a due process right uh, for the police to protect us the way the law says that they're supposed to. And uh, the, the key cases in this area have involved often things like uh, police failing to enforce a protective order that uh, an abused partner gets against a partner, failing to protect kids who are known to be at risk from abusive parents, uh, failure to adequately police a neighborhood. And what the Supreme Court has consistently said is there is not 
a enforceable duty based on which we can sue for police failures. There is not a due process right or equal protection right um, to uh, have the police do their job. Now, there's some edge areas where, for instance, if uh, you found that the police were absolutely refusing to police a particular area based on the race of the people there, you might start getting into uh, comprehensible theories. But when -hmm. it comes to the police just didn't do their job, that usually is taken by the courts not to be a constitutional uh, right. Is the Supreme Court wrong about that? I mean, that's there are all sorts of things that the government should do that the Constitution doesn't force it to do. You also have certain obligations of the government that are that are created by statute or by state constitutions. I mean, for, there's no federal constitutional right to a free education, for example. That right is established in most state constitutions. Uh, and so that's where you look to to enforce it. And conceivably, you could do something similar with police. But it sounds, except in the, the example you described, where you know you have a you know a particular race-based or, or other protected category-based reason that the police are, are providing services in some places, not others. I see why that would be an equal protection violation. But isn't the court right? It seems like a stretch to say that there's a substantive due process right for the police to protect you from specific crimes. Certainly, it wouldn't be part of the trend of the last half century, which has been the court initially finding some substantive due process rights and then usually retreating in the other direction as fast as it can since then. Uh, And uh, critics uh, of the concept do point out that it's hard to draw the line uh, when you're talking about a substantive due process right. You know, when is it bad policy? When is it just bad individual choices in a situation? And when is it a complete failure to uh, do anything that they're supposed to do? So uh, there's a reluctance uh, on the part of the justices, I think, to constitutionalize Um, not just how the police restrict your liberty, but how they go about policing uh, at all. Because I'm I'm trying to imagine what a legal regime would look like where you could generally sue over the the failure of of police to do their jobs adequately. I mean, again, you know, I mean, to, to go to the education example, there are there are certain rights created by the Americans with Disabilities Act um, related to special education. But this is both, a, it ends up being a complicated area of law, and it's an area where, where there are statutes that set out, you know, what specifically what you're supposed to be entitled to. If we said that the police had a constitutional duty to protect you from crimes, and I mean, it, you know, you can talk about obviously egregious cases like this one in Uvalde, but like, would it be possible to just sue because, you know, generally the police are under-resourced in an area, that there aren't enough police officers where you are, um, that they haven't been making enough arrests discretionarily. I mean, this is something you see people complain about in a lot of cities right now. The police are not arresting enough people for certain crimes because they're upset about DA policies or or because they correctly assess that the DA will not charge the crimes if they arrest for those. Would you be able to sue over that if there was an affirmative right to effective policing? Because it seems like that could end up as a big mess of litigation where you're trying to figure out what the boundaries are about exactly how effective the police have to be before they're violating your rights through their inefficacy. Uh, I think that's the case. And you have to remember that we're starting from a baseline of the concept of sovereign immunity, right? Where uh, the baseline idea is that you can't sue the sovereign, whether that's the federal government or the state government, except to the extent 
it's waived its immunity from being sued. This is something we talked about a lot on on all the president's lawyers in a very different context, uh, where you have the Westfall Act and the uh, what's the name of the other related law, the Federal Tort Claims Act. Right. And so one of the things there is the federal government cannot be liable for defamation. Um, so there are all sorts of things where if a federal employee does them, then really that's on the federal government. But the federal government has produced a list of things you may sue the federal government for, and defamation's not on it. Now defamation could be on it; they could change the law. And so similarly here with regard to policing, um, the lack of a constitutional right doesn't mean that you can't have laws that would establish certain claims that you could bring against the federal government or against state governments or municipal governments, and that would set out rules about exactly what you're able to uh, to get relief for. Well, sure, but it's very hard to get those laws passed, and it's especially hard when it's anything related to law enforcement because of our cultural reverence for law enforcement. So, you know, we're, we're still, with respect to uh, constitutional claims against uh, state actors relying on a law from uh, the 1800s, uh, because it's very hard to get Congress to pass anything to allow you to sue any part of the government, state or federal, for claims. Uh, and, you know, we've been talking about having a parallel federal law where you can sue federal actors for violating your rights, and, and that gets nowhere. So we are dealing with a regime that, in general, makes it very hard to uh, sue any component of it, except in the very few ways under the narrow procedures it decides uh, to let you do so. Josh, I want to point out that there are some possible exceptions to this general doctrine uh, that you can't sue the police for failing to protect you. And there are arguments that they might even apply here. So the, there's a doctrine uh, called the special relationship doctrine that more or less says that when the state has created a special relationship with you, then you might be able to sue it for its failure to act. Now, an example of that is when you're in custody. So once you're in custody, the police have a, a certain level of duty to prevent things from happening for you. Now, anyone who knows how things go in prison and in jail knows that that is not a duty that is upheld particularly well, and uh, it's very rare for their actual to be very good consequences for the failure of that duty. But, you know, once they put you in the back of the police car, they've got a duty not to drive off a cliff um, into a lake. Uh, so <laughs> the question becomes, at what point have the police, in effect, restrained your liberty so they become responsible for your safety? Here, the argument would be uh, law enforcement in Uvalde knew that there were these parents here wanting to go in and rescue their own kids. Some were even armed. Uh, there were some law enforcement members who uh, reports say were allowed to go in and get their kids, but they restrained all these parents from trying to go in. They even handcuffed some of them, and they took over the scene, preventing anyone from going in and doing anything. And the question is, by doing that, did they create a special relationship where they completely prevented any other method of rescue? Not surprisingly, there's some split case law on this. There's a case out of a different circuit where basically uh, the cops prevented any of the parents who were present uh, at a lake from jumping in to try to save a drowning child. And the dr child drowned, and there uh, they said basically the police prevented any other method of rescue, so they're on the hook for that. But there's cases in hostage-type situations where it's not, uh, they say, no, that's not enough to create a duty when the hostage situation goes bad and someone gets killed. So it's a plausible argument to make, I think, but it's not one that's clearly going to win. 
a special relationship is not created by the fact that these children were compulsorily in school. The government made them come to this government institution. I realize that's not custody like being in a prison or a mental institution, but the, a special relationship is not created by the fact that they were in a public school, um, that the government had created a legal obligation for them to attend school. Only with respect, I believe the law says, to risks uh, at the school that are related to the school. So not... Well, and a school shooting doesn't count? Well, uh, maybe it should. I mean, given that the reality is that it is a known risk of going to school. But so far, that that argument, at least with respect to law enforcement failings, has been rejected. That it's the type of special duty that creates a uh, a duty on law enforcement uh, as opposed to a duty at the school to, for instance, protect from a teacher abusing them or something like that. And so the the way that these issues would be litigated, if, if we were trying to figure out, did the government, uh, either the school district or the city or any of these other public agencies in Uvalde create a special relationship by securing the scene and refusing to allow parents to seek their own uh, avenues of rescue for their children, you would sue for wrongful death or something like that, and then there would be motions before a trial about whether this was an entity you could even bring a claim against? Well, it would depend on um, the theory that you use. So if, if you were going with a theory that there was a substantive due process right uh, to have adequate police protection and that was violated, then that would sort of be the underlying theory. And yes, it could be expressed through claims like wrongful death, but you know the the ultimate mechanism likely would be a uh, action for deprivation of constitutional rights uh, under the statute uh, Title 42 of the United States Code, Section 1983. You hear a lot about 1983 cases, and, and that's the statute. It says that anyone who under color of law violates somebody's uh, constitutional rights is liable. Next, there's the issue of qualified immunity, and a listener has a question. Hi, Josh and Ken. This is Dan in Maryland. I understand roughly where we are. Law enforcement officers are immune from civil suits in response to their actions as law enforcement. What I don't understand is how we got here. It seems outrageous that police are so often free from any individual consequence for bad behavior unless a DA can be convinced to bring criminal charges. See Uvalde. Were things always this way? If it's too big a question, feel free to tell me to pony up 200 grand and go to law school. Thanks. So I guess, first of all, I would say it's it's not that law enforcement officers are absolutely immune from civil suits. It's they're usually immune, right? It's that the bar that's created for when you can sue an officer in their individual capacity is very high. Right. It's it's qualified immunity, as it says so right in the label. So um, <laughs> the idea is that uh, state actors are only liable if they violate a uh, a constitutional right that was clearly established at the time. And the concept was that you shouldn't hold these uh, state actors accountable for knowing all the intricacies of the law and these newfangled theories, and only if it's a constitutional right that any reasonable person would know about uh, should you hold them liable. In terms of uh, Dan's question about where did it come from, uh, well, you know, 
you would arguably need a doctor with a flashlight uh, <laughs> to tell you that. Uh, yeah, is this supposed to be in the Constitution somewhere that police officers get qualified immunity? It is not. It, it arose from the expansion of 1983 lawsuits. These are the lawsuits for deprivation of your civil rights. Exactly. So as the court, mostly the Warren court, uh, 1960s, 1970s, recognized more constitutional rights, enforced more constitutional rights, particularly surrounding criminal defendants, uh, there were more lawsuits under 1983, more claims that officers had violated these newly, uh, you know, identified and enforced rights. And uh, the court uh, kind of said, whoa, 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 hang on here. We can't, you know, all these newfangled things, we can't be making police officers accountable for violating them. Uh, that seems unfair. And so part of what was going on here was a conflict over exactly what 1983 meant uh, when it said that you're liable for violating uh, constitutional rights when you act under color of law. So the, the side that won out was the more liberal interpretation that says that that means when you're acting cloaked in any apparent authority uh, as uh, an officer of the state. Uh, the more conservative side wanted it to mean when you're following the rules. So in other words, you would only be able to sue if the officer was acting under color of law, meaning doing what uh, the department's policy said they were supposed to do. That seems backward as a matter of policy, right? Like, I, I mean, the law could be written in whatever dumb way it is, but like, isn't it especially important to be able to sue the, the officers in their individual capacity when they're acting against the policy of the department? Yeah, uh, you, know, you, you listeners can't see, but Josh is making a Tucker Carlson face of complete incredulity here. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it, exactly. That would be a huge hole in the statute. That would mean that basically uh, there's no remedy in the common situation where a cop simply ignores the uh, purported policies of the police department that say you're not allowed to do this. Which would include Uvalde, where the procedures for response to a school shooting did not say stand in the hallway for an hour and do nothing. Well, exactly. And they were, I mean, they were following orders from the commanding officer on the scene, but what he was ordering them to do was not in, not in line with the policy of the department. Well, exactly. So it, it would be a very narrow interpretation that would really leave very little remedy most of the time. And if you read the dissents uh, from conservative justices like Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, they have even acknowledged this. They've said that qualified immunity is just made up. We just made that up. And we wouldn't have had to make it up if you had listened to me about what 1983 means. <laughs> uh, in other words, uh, you know, if you'd made a really narrow statute, then it would be easy. But since you've interpreted broadly, we have to have this silly rule that you've come up with. So qualified immunity completely judge created in defiance of what's the usual conservative doctrine, which is that we don't put a new gloss on a statute for policy reasons, which is more or less what they did. But so what's, I mean, I assume that's not what they say in the decisions, right? I mean, there, we, we talk every so often about these, these doctrines that seem basically made up. I mean, the executive privilege doctrine seems to be made up by judges. Uh, substantive due process, I think, is very often just made up by judges. But there's always some story about what, you know, we, we, you know, we, we picked through the Constitution with a, with a needle and we found this thing and it, and it attaches to that. So what's the, what, is, what is the putative place that qualified immunity comes from? Well, the narrative, Josh, is that often you have a case where we're defining the contours of, say, the Fourth Amendment or the Fifth Amendment 
in the context of suing a police officer for violating it. So we're not simply uh, allowing someone to raise a defense in a criminal case, but we're suing someone for doing something. And at the same time, we're determining whether what they did is a constitutional violation. And the narrative in these cases is it's fundamentally unfair when it's not clear until we decide it what whether or not this was a constitutional violation to hold that officer liable for something that wasn't clear at the time. Well, that sounds like a policy argument. It is exactly a policy argument. And let me just say that uh, you and I, if we go out violating the law and there's some dispute about whether or not we violated it until the court decides, we generally don't get that deference. Uh, there may be some sort of high uh, intent standard, but in general, uh, they will build new law on our backs and will suffer from it. But we're we're not police officers. So we get down to the bottom line, which is that under qualified immunity, any state actor sued under 1983 for deprivation of constitutional rights. The question is, did they violate a law right? And if so, was it clearly established at the time? Now, you're guessing and you're right that there is a lot of mischief in the phrase clearly established. Uh, and it operates differently in different contexts. So what is clearly established works differently in the First Amendment context, for instance, that it does in the Fourth Amendment context. So when I do First Amendment 1983 cases, which I do, you have a broader standard for what's clearly established. You, you, there are rules like you generally, you can't, a state actor can't retaliate against a person for protected speech using their state official power. Basically, the idea is that people are more likely to understand what the First Amendment does than what the Fourth Amendment does. I mean, that sounds true. I mean, it again sounds like a policy argument, but like the idea is like everybody knows what the First Amendment says, whereas the Fourth Amendment is complicated and more obscure. Yeah, but again, that's a policy argument, and it's never articulated quite that well. I think, frankly, it's about the First Amendment being more universally loved and embraced uh, <laughs> and even by judges than the Fourth Amendment. Because in Fourth and Fifth Amendment situations, the bitter criminal defense attorney in 1983 attorney joke is that, you know, you've got to find the case that says that a officer named Wayne wearing green socks on Tuesday can't do it exactly that way. <laughs> and if you don't have that case, then you don't have it clearly established. And that's that is uh, a satirical take on it, but there are times when it feels that way, uh, where the extent of specificity you need in a prior decision saying, yes, that's a violation, seems really farcical. Am I right in my guess that a, a plaintiff advancing a First Amendment claim is more likely to be an innocent person than a plaintiff advancing a Fourth Amendment claim? Is that part of why the courts are skeptical that that very often it's someone who did in fact commit the underlying crime, uh, but their Fourth or Fifth Amendment rights were violated and that gives them a ground to sue, but maybe it makes them less sympathetic? I'd say that's probably true. So the people making 1983 claims over First Amendment violations are more likely not to be doing so in a, in a criminal context, although it does happen with prisoners being deprived of the right to read certain things and write certain things. Uh, and also in the First Amendment context, it's, it's not a violation unless it's protected speech. So you have that analysis sort of built in. But yes, in, in many cases where there are Fourth or Fifth Amendment violations, they're being raised by people who are being investigated, uh, suspected of having been committed a crime. Uh, sometimes who did, in fact, commit a crime. So let's drag this back, though, to the context of Uvalde. So yes. 
even if you could come up with this idea uh, that there's a substantive due process duty of the police to rescue those children because the police took over the scene, prevented anyone else from rescuing the kids, and created a special relationship with the kids, uh, triggering a duty to protect them. You see the problem, right? That would not be not well established. established. It is not clearly established. So, and, uh, so that would be a huge barrier to relief. Here's the other practical barrier, and this blows people away when they find out about it. You know the way a normal case goes when you sue someone, right? Uh, you sue, they probably file some sort of motion to dismiss. If uh, they lose, the case goes on. Then they file a motion for summary judgment. They lose that too. Then they have to go to trial and there's finally a result and then they appeal. But qualified immunity is different. It's special. So when you sue a state actor, first they make a motion to dismiss. And if they lose that, if they lose a motion to dismiss that's based on qualified immunity, then they have a right to an immediate appeal. Immediately. And that means the way the appellate system works, probably two years of delay. Let's call it two years. Then they come back down and you go some more and you go through the discovery and you get to summary judgment and they make a motion for summary judgment based on qualified immunity. Let's say they lose that. Guess what? Another immediate appeal. So... I have cases where the, the action happened in 2016 and the suit was filed in 2017 and we're still litigating because they have multiple layers of appeals, which is a huge barrier, practically speaking, to get relief because you need lawyers who are able to litigate for six, eight years uh, before they get paid. You've got people who just don't have what it takes to the stick to to go through the awful parts of litigation for eight years. Uh, it, it's a huge bonus uh, to the state practically. So this is infuriating as a conceptual matter. I'm a little bit skeptical about how much policing or the manner in which the government provides policing services would change if the policy around qualified immunity changed. I mean, like, for example, it's hard for me to imagine the cops who stood around in Uvalde, either, you know, the, the chief who gave the orders or the, the cops who were following them, that like it being top of mind, like, I'm going to get sued if I do something wrong here. I mean, I th there's all sorts of other fears. I mean, both, you know, about their physical safety, but then also about, you know, I might get fired if I do the wrong thing or, you know, I'm or maybe maybe it's impossible to fire me because of the union rules here. At the other end of the spectrum, the, there's the question of whether you might be criminally charged. I'm, I'm just a little bit skeptical of the threat of civil litigation against police officers in their individual capacities, especially since most of them are probably not very attractive defendants in terms of their ability to actually pay a large judgment. You would sure hope that in that situation, the main thing motivating them are, are kids getting shot. Right. And not the prospect that if we don't do our job, we might get sued. Um, so I, I think I share your skepticism. The problem is, is, is surrounding law enforcement is this constant narrative of what does or doesn't deter good or bad police behavior. So, you know, as we've seen, as crime rates fluctuate, there are all sorts of claims that, oh, cops are afraid to police adequately because of the Black Lives Matter marches or, you know, uh, you're criticizing use of force and now that they're not policing these neighborhoods and more people are dying. And a lot of the times the the 
uh, both the conceptual and, and uh, the actual factual underpinnings of these are not clear and are very subject to dispute. But it's just a constant narrative around anything about policing that anything you do might deter them from doing the right thing. And so, the, I mean, the I, the one we hear the most there is they're concerned about being criminally charged in more in cases a lot more marginal than the than the Derek Chauvin case. And so, I guess in theory, you could create a countervailing set of forces where you know maybe you have police afraid of legal consequences if they do police, but then also afraid of consequences if they don't police. I mean, I, the, there's a justice argument for being able to bring civil suits that you know people should be able to recover their damages when they're wronged by other people, and that's that that's completely fair. But the, sort of the incentive argument, the idea that we'd get better policing by opening up these litigation channels. I'm, I'm, I'm just skeptical of, of, the, of the efficacy there. I think that's true. And that's because it's uh, the line between doing or not doing the thing and eventually being held liable uh, is so tenuous. And there are so many things in the way, including juries that usually are, are come in mostly sympathetic to cops, um, really having been raised their whole lives with law and order narratives uh, about the cop as the hero. And so uh, it's, it's very indirect. So I think I share your skepticism about the deterrence uh, factor. I don't know that a jury would be so sympathetic to this set of cops, and especially to the to the department. I mean, uh, you know, if we're talking about potential litigation here, it's m- much more likely to be against the government entities rather than against the government employees in their individual capacities. And these government entities are, you know, the, we've learned all of this extremely negative information about the Uvalde PD and the and the Uvalde school district and how they responded to this uh, through some really excellent reporting. Um, and then we have efforts by news outlets to obtain certain documents, including body camera footage, because um, you had a lot of police on scene standing around in that hallway. Um, we could learn even more uh, horrifying, infuriating facts about what's happened here. And so now you have legal fights over over the disclosure of that information. And you have Texas laws that govern when, uh, when government information must be released and when it, when it must be, uh, when it must be uh, kept confidential. And so you have arguments from the city of Uvalde and other entities about why they shouldn't have to disclose body camera footage and various other information. Um, and so first of all, my sense is that they, they, they're actually on pretty good ground under Texas law in their efforts to, to, to retain certain information here, in part because the law protects the interests of people who were never convicted of crimes that there's information about, and the shooter here is dead and has never been convicted and will never be convicted of murder. And so it's this sort of perverse situation where it's the, you're preserving the rights of the shooter by uh, withholding certain information here. Yeah, the thing is, is that the, the right to uh, public records like this is usually governed by state and federal public information uh, uh, statutes. And those statutes are built with a lot of exemptions, uh, many of which are specifically aimed at law enforcement. And so uh, anyone who practices in the area, the Freedom of the Information Act for the feds or the various states public records acts are very familiar with these exemptions being wielded very broadly and vigorously and it being very common to hit a brick wall as soon as you start asking for things. So, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at this series of articles of shock and dismay about what Texas is doing here with a certain level of amusement because it is, is very typical for how this goes. Um, and one of the arguments they're making that I think is kind of the most perverse in a way, uh, but is very well founded in the statute, is that they can refuse to turn over 
uh, law enforcement records uh, that might make it more difficult for them to investigate, detect, uh, and uh, convict criminals. And one of the arguments they're making is if you turn over all this body cam stuff, uh, you're going to see our, our methods uh, for <laughs> dealing with school shooters, which apparently involve mostly squatting in a parking lot. And, uh, you know, so... I mean, actually, yes, the more we uh, the more we know about what the cops did here, plausibly, the more emboldened school shooters would be if they knew these cops like this are going to do nothing. But uh, like you said, um, I don't think that these uh, arguments they're making to hold back these records represent really much of a departure at all from what the law allows them to argue and, and maybe even encourages them to argue. So what would it look like to, to write a law that would be more appropriately tailored here? Because, I mean, it's the, one of the things that they mention is that there's an ongoing investigation of the shooting. Ordinarily, you do not have a dead suspect. And ordinarily, there is a real government interest in withholding certain information that's going to be used at trial. There's a process, through a discovery process through which that, uh, that information will have to be disclosed. And so that would be, I mean, you, you don't want an open records law that allows people to rifle through the government's drawers and look at absolutely everything. Is there, is there a way to, to write these laws more narrowly where we would see information that is clearly of public interest here, um, but the government would preserve its rights and its duties to conceal certain information that really shouldn't be made public? Well, I, I think that you could narrow the uh, sort of the dead suspect exception to a situation where... Um, uh, you know, the the government asserts that there is not a reasonable cause to believe the person committed any crime. Uh, and that would basically allow you to release stuff about uh, uh, active shooters who were killed and, and, you know, people killed by the police in the course of uh, crimes and things like that. But it, it would give them a lot of discretion, which is what they have. So keep, keep in mind, um, these rules are things that don't compel them enforceably not to release records. It allows them to decide not to release records and to seek the attorney general's uh, sort of blessing of that decision. So th this is really about preserving uh, law enforcement control over the narrative and control over what information gets out, not making the ultimate decisions about what will or won't come out. I mean, there's different categories, right? There's certain information that the government could release at its discretion. There's other information that it has an affirmative legal duty not to release, right? Right. But those are relatively few and generally related to uh, individual privacy and financial privacy and things like that. Uh, a lot of it is victim-centered or financial privacy-centered or that type of thing. And of course, there are many categories having to deal with the uh, privacy of police officers and members of law enforcement. While we're writing legislation, um, to, to loop back around to what we were talking about at the beginning, about the, the, the duty of police departments to protect people from crime— what would I mean, what would you have as a law if we were going to establish an affirmative right there? How would you limit that right? What would you what would you say, you know, what, what would be the grounds in which you could sue the police department for having failed to intervene in a crime against you? Well, first of all, it's important to note that there are statutes that impose an affirmative duty 
for law enforcement to act under some circumstances. They're mostly state laws, and uh, there are a series of them out there. A number of them uh, passed in the last 20 or 30 years have created an affirmative duty for a law, law enforcement officer to intervene when um, one of their compatriots is you know, beating the shit out of somebody. Uh, these are sort of Rodney King era uh, legal reforms that say that the police officer who sees a fellow police officer um, using excessive force is supposed to step in. So you could create a law that said something to the effect of that when police officers act in an extreme departure from departmental policy regarding um, the protection of the public, that that could be uh, the subject of a lawsuit. And, you know, it's easy to narrow a law like that so it can't be used all the time. So it's only when it's an extreme departure from policy, uh, when it only occurs when lives are at serious risk or something like that. And that might be something that states would consider. Would that create perverse incentives where the departments would be encouraged to write policies that create as few affirmative duties to protect as possible in order to protect themselves from litigation? Yeah, that would be the concern uh, that, uh, you know, you would no longer have this policy that says that, uh, you know, you should go in after the gunman in a school shooter situation because that's what all the research and intelligence shows is the most effective way to do it. And that just leaving the gunman in there with kids uh, ends badly. Uh, so there may be a that may deter them from encouraging things like that. There are clearly improvements that should be made in this area of law. But I just sort of, again, go back to my skepticism of, of civil litigation as a primary driver of improvements of the quality of government service here. I mean, I think we've seen the public outrage at what happened in Uvalde. And this is not the, the typical police department response to shooting incidents like this. I mean, unfortunately, we've seen a relatively large number of them. Um, and so I think, you know, it is it is possible to have an ethic of policing and of government service where you don't do this because it is it is a morally horrifying thing to do. And that that's sort of the, the primary avenue for getting police and police departments to behave differently, at least in this specific area of response, um, which is not to say that you shouldn't be able to sue over it. I just I think that, you know, we're, we're more likely to get there through through political uh, avenues than from judicial avenues. I think I agree with you, Josh. I, I think that uh, although I agree that maybe the main focus should be on reparations to victims, to, to recovery for losses, and not for the, you know, alleged encouragement deterrence factor uh, of lawsuits like this, because uh, of so many factors being boiled in here, uh, I'm not sure they're effective that way. That's enough serious trouble for this week. We want to hear what you thought about this episode. Uh, there is a comment thread, a discussion thread right below the page uh, for this episode, episode two of Serious Trouble. You can go to seriousTrouble.show. You'll see uh, each episode has a post, and each of those posts will have links to resources about the episode, some of the things we've talked about, some of the court cases we've talked about, things to learn more about the legal issues we're discussing. Uh, you can also email us. Uh, you can email the RICO hotline. That's RicoHotline at SeriousTrouble.show. Um, but uh, I'd encourage you to go to the website. That's where you can sign up to get all of the updates and including next week's episodes going to be behind the paywall. Uh, so if you want to receive that, go to SeriousTrouble.show, become a paying subscriber, uh, and we'll be back uh, in your players. You'll have instructions about how to get the show delivered to your preferred podcast player. We'll be back with that next week. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. 
Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's Josh Barrow and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way very soon.